G'day, mate. Pointy here, ready to go. Deathcon 3 on you guys. But uh, we'll start it up nice and easy. We're talking about tonight. A lot has been written about the corruption of politicians. We've seen that before. But really not enough has been said about how unbelievably boring they are in person. That's the main thing you notice when you have dinner with them. Their main interest is themselves. That's what they talk about. It's all they can talk about. And it's very tedious. Narcissism always is tedious. And so one of the great and happy and unexpected surprises of this cycle is how many interesting people are running around the country. People with something to say that isn't necessarily about them. People who have interest beyond just accumulating more power. J.D. Vance in Ohio, Carrie Lake and Blake Masters in Arizona, Joe Kent in Washington State, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. None of these people has been in politics before. All of them seem to be listening to voters, listening, not just talking. And amazingly, all of them could win on November 8th. And if they do, that's a huge problem for the Democratic Party and for the people in charge more broadly. It's a potential disaster. It's one thing to elect more Mitch McConnells, tame Republicans who know what the rules are. The first rule, of course, is you must lose. People like that will play along as they faithfully have for decades. But what would happen if someone like Blake Masters or J.D. Vance wound up in the U.S. Senate? That would be disruptive. These are not people who care about secret partisan arrangements or even about partisan affiliation. They might actually try to change the country for the better. So if you're benefiting from the current disaster, that's a scary prospect. But no one running for office right now is quite as scary to people like that as Carrie Lake. She's running for governor of Arizona. Lake may be the most skillful communicator in American politics right now. But most terrifying of all, she spent 30 years in television news. So when Carrie Lake says the media are corrupt, she's not guessing. She lived right in the middle of it for decades. This is a deeply unsettling message for Democrats to hear because it strikes at the heart of their power. Without the complicity of the media, there is no chance neoliberal Democrats could get elected to office. Not one of them ever. They've got nothing to offer you. It's not like they're improving the country if you looked around. No. They need the media. The media are all they have. The liberal media, they're not just annoying. They're the key to the whole system. Take them away and everything changes. So it's essential to the people in charge that voters continue to believe that the so-called news coverage they see and read is real, that it conveys facts and not simply crude North Korea-style political propaganda. But Carrie Lake knows better. She knows the truth. Again, she has seen it. And they truly hate her for revealing this secret in public. Carrie Lake has spent the last year absorbing the cruelest and most outrageous possible attacks from her former colleagues in the media. They're not simply trying to defeat her in November, though of course they are. They're trying to destroy her. They're trying to make certain that no American voter ever has the chance to hear what Carrie Lake is saying. Because again, Once people know it's all fake, this isn't news. These are lies, and these lies are the key to keeping the people who are wrecking the country in power. Once people understand that, the game is over. It's done. They have to stop Carrie Lake. Here's a sample. Carrie Lake was the picture, the image, the definition of a threat to our democracy. Why the threat to democracy by way of Arizona is way more dire than you may think. Carrie Lake, she has made lies about the 2020 election conspiracy theories. Carrie Lake, who has been out there spreading uh, 
false conspiracies and election lies still today. Gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who's been called Trump in heels, and will not say whether she would accept an election loss in her own race, is an extreme anti-vaxxer. She's an election denier. She's a conspiracy theorist. Rising star of the right wing. And proud spreader of lies. We have to be abundantly clear about just how radical the Carrie Lakes and Blake Masters are. They are nothing like the J- John McCain. She might be in a position to win the governorship in this state, uh, and that that would be a very dangerous thing, both for the state and for the country in 2024. A threat to our society, Carrie Lake. Oh, she's an extremist. Carrie Lake is extreme. Scream the people who support open borders and late-term sex-selective abortions, and the castration of children. She's extreme, unlike us. She's hurting democracy, they yell, as they promote censorship and voter fraud. She's a threat to our society. And it's not just aging lifestyle liberals on Xanax who have shows on MSNBC who are saying things like this. No, it's Republicans, too. Members of the GOP establishment in both Arizona and in Washington. That would include, amazingly, former Arizona Governor Jan Brewer, who they told you was a conservative. But then, of course, they told you Liz Cheney was a conservative, too. Be happy with her. She's conservative. She's on your side. <laughs> okay. Not surprisingly, Liz Cheney has come to the same conclusion about Carrie Lake. Republican candidate Carrie in Lake. Arizona for governor. Right. Yeah. Who's an election denier who is dangerous. And that's the kind of thing we cannot see in our party. We cannot right. see an accommodation like that. And I think it's very important that we be clear about that. So are you going to campaign for Katie Hobbs, the Democratic candidate for governor in Arizona, as a result of that? Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that Carrie Lake is not elected. So... Does that include campaigning for Democrats if that's what it takes? Yes. It does. Okay, there you go. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that Carrie Lake isn't elected the governor of Arizona, a state I don't live in, she says before an audience of people in Texas who won't be governed by Carrie Lake either. And they applaud. Yes, got to stop Carrie Lake. She's a fascist. She's dangerous. She'll destroy our society. Why? Because she's telling the truth about the media with authority because she knows. So that's the flavor of the media coverage Carrie Lake has received. In fact, over the past year, there's not been a single objective or anything approaching an objective news story about Carrie Lake in all of legacy media. Every single story has been a partisan attack because they know she's telling the truth. But here's the amazing thing and the heartening thing is it tells you about the waning power of the media. Carrie Lake thrived anyway. She's now leading the race in Arizona. If the election is fair, she will win. So how'd she do that? Few people can do that. How'd Carrie Lake do that? Well... She knows what she believes. She's not resetting her positions from a teleprompter like Joe Biden or John Fetterman. She's not brain damaged. She has real beliefs. But more than anything, Carrie Lake is not afraid of the media. She's not on a leash like everyone else. She knows who they are, and she's willing to say so. She doesn't care what the New York Times thinks because she knows what the New York Times is because she lived in that world. Watch this clip from Tuesday of this week in which a reporter calls Carrie Lake an election denier. If you're going to start throwing around terms like election denier, let's remember who the other election deniers were, Hillary Clinton and all the Democrats. Let's talk about election deniers. Here's 150 examples of Democrats denying 
election results. So it's okay for Democrats to question elections, but it's not okay for Republicans. It's a crock of BS. Every one of you knows it. We have our freedom of speech, and we're not going to relinquish it to a bunch of fake news propagandists. Since 2000, people have questioned the legitimacy of our elections. And all we're asking is that in the future, we don't have that have to happen anymore. So you watch a clip like that and you begin to connect some dots. Okay, so the media that control our perception of reality, that lie about what they tell us and don't tell us all kinds of things we probably should know about the rest of the world, for example, those media organizations are relatively speaking tiny. They're tiny. This is a country of 340 million people. MSNBC has like 11 people watching. So why are they so powerful? Well, they're so powerful because the people in charge take them seriously. They act like they have moral legitimacy, when of course they have no moral legitimacy of any kind. This is full North Korean propaganda. It's an offense against democracy, what they're doing. And Carrie Lake knows that. And she pulls off their mask and lets them know they don't deserve our respect. Here, for example, is Carrie Lake's response in June when a CNN reporter asked her for an interview. Watch this. Hi. 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 Nice to see you. Mm. Off you don't have a mask on anymore. Uh, What's we're, going we're on? Outside. Do you have a wow. Well, chat? we're six feet apart. <laughs> do you have a minute to chat? Um, I'll do an interview. Okay. As long as it airs on CNN Plus. Oh. <laughs> Does that still exist? Yeah. I didn't think so because the people don't like what you guys are peddling, so, which is propaganda. Thank do you. you. Do you freak i'll do it on cnn plus oh that failed because everyone hates you <laughs> it's so great because it's so true all of us know it but the people in charge especially in the republican party never admit it out loud if the new york times did a hit piece on mitch mcconnell he'd be rushing around his office worried about it the new york times is a hit piece in carrie lake every day and she laughs because it doesn't matter what the new york times thinks they only have power because we give them power because we treat them like they're real, but they're fake. They're ghosts. Turn on the lights and they evaporate. They go away. They don't actually exist. They're a fantasy that can only continue as long as we participate. So in attacking the media, what Carrie Lake is really doing is standing up to institutional power. So, for example, Carrie Lake is not afraid to improve the lives of people in Arizona by pushing back against the vaccine lunacy. Oh, she's an extreme vaccine denier. She's an anti-vaxxer, says MSNBC. She doesn't care. On Wednesday, she announced that no matter what the CDC does, Arizonans will never be forced to inject their children with an experimental vaccine that clearly hurts people. Watch. This is an experimental shot. Our children are not guinea pigs. And we're not going to have incidents of myocarditis in our young, precious children. Oh. Okay, enough of that vaccine denial. Man, that, that's that's nonsense. Yeah, some, some people do get myocarditis, but it is quite rare from taking the vaccine. A friend of mine got myocarditis after taking the vaccine, and he's worried he'd never take the vaccine again or force his kids to, to take it. But you, you get over myocarditis. It, it's like the monkeypox or HIV. I mean, it, you can live a full, free life. You know, with a little bit of myocarditis, a little bit of myocarditis, like never hurt anyone, like except for, you know, just on on a few occasions, like myocarditis is just a small price to pay.
for for the wonders, for the benefits, for the safety and security that comes from from getting fully vaccinated. So wasn't uh, Tucker contradicting himself there? <laughs> like, didn't he start by, by talking about how powerful the media was? And then, yeah, you can't make an omelet without a little bit of myocarditis. It's a small price to play. Small price, guys. Like, did you see that beautiful sunrise this morning? I mean, do you see this very classy shirt that I'm working wearing? I mean, what about the, the blinding whiteness of my teeth? Like, what's a little myocarditis between friends? All the cool people are getting it. Not such a big deal. Not that many people get it. and Most of them get over it. But uh, Tucker was contradicting himself. Didn't he start out by, by talking about how powerful the media was? And that's all that the, the Democrats have on their side is the, is the news media? Connells. Let's try it again. Tame Republicans who know what the rules are. The first rule, of course, is you must lose. People like that will play along as they faithfully have for decades. But what would happen if someone like Blake Masters or J.D. Vance wound up in the U.S. Senate? That would be disruptive. These are not people who care about secret partisan arrangements or even about. Seriously, how disruptive do you think it would be to have J.D. Vance, uh, Blake Masters and Kerry Lake all in the U.S. Senate? Do you, do you really think that the quality of your life would improve that much, aside from if you're a political junkie and you just, you know, you just want to hear the, these people disrupt things? But let's just say you're an ordinary bloke, you're an ordinary Sheila, you, you're going about your life. Do you, do you honestly think that your, the quality of your life w would change that much if these three people are in political office? I would say it, it, it may improve mildly. And if they don't make it, if all three of them are rejected, then then if you're an ordinary bloke, the quality of your life may diminish 1%. And on the other hand, if they make it to political office, the quality of your life may improve 1%, one or 2%. So it's not like nothing, but your life's not going to change depending on who gets to political office in, in a major way. I mean, I, I support all three of these candidates, but for an average bloke, it's going to improve your life maybe one, two percent, unless you pay a lot of attention and you treat politics as, as you know a passion. Then you may get some some more benefit. Partisan affiliation, they might actually try to change the country for the better. So if you're benefiting from the current disaster, they might try to change the country for the better. So two of them will make it into the U.S. Senate. How much difference can two U.S. senators make? A very mild difference. Right? It's not going to change the world. Define quality of life. Okay, the quality of your life, that's really easy. I've got an answer for you, Randy Martin. The quality of your life is overwhelmingly, for all intents and purposes, the quality of your life is defined by the quality of your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your community, whether you can... Oh. Whether you can hold down a job, whether you can, you know, walk down the, the, the street, whether you can uh, feel at ease with your neighbors. That's what defines the, the quality of one's life. So blessings, Elliot Blatt. How's your myocarditis? Blessings, blessings Luke. Welcome back. Man. How's your myocarditis, bro? Oh, uh, you know, I, I got a touch of the old uh, asthma again. It's making its recurrence. It really sucks. 
But uh, at least it's not myocarditis because I'm a pure blood, bro. <clears throat> yeah, ninety nine percent pure Bavarian phenotype. <laughs> that too, man. That too. So, so is this uh you, you back on regular schedule, man? Uh, you know, you gotta you gotta keep the appearances up, or we start losing the habit. You know, and then we start moving on. Bro, you would forsake me that easily. I just take a, a few weeks off for Jewish holidays to commune with the Lord, and, and, and like I'm already fighting for for survival. Yeah, well, you know, it's the gaps. It's those long gaps. Then suddenly, people start looking at other live streams. You know, whatever. Welcome back. Oh, thank well, you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think I'm back, but I, I play it by ear. Like, I, I yeah. don't feel constrained by by the show. For me, it's a pleasure. And when it stops being a pleasure, I take time out. Yeah, well, the news is <coughs> that's pretty fun these days, you have to admit. huh? In, in what respect? <laughs> well, you got this this whole situation in the UK, Liz Truss resigning, and now oh, yeah. Boris, <laughs> Boris potentially coming back. Well, that'd be hilarious. I wonder how many children he's sired in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> he's probably chuckling the whole way. He's all like he's probably on a plane right now on his way back from London. And what a charmed life that guy leads. It's a life that works, Luke. He is so likable. I mean, anyone who wants to be liked, you know, should take lessons from Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Right down to the hair that sort of yeah. bed bed <laughs> It's just so hysterical. But there's there's so much news on so many fronts, Luke. This is just it, you know. There's there's that whole Michigas going, and then so uh, you hear that Worski's potentially back on the old cocaine. You, no, you hear about the, no, yeah. God forbid. So the, the Kino Casino is in shambles now because Worski uh, Worski's <laughs> he's back on the blow. He was uh, it, well alleged. I, I think there's probably eighty five percent chance that it's true. But he kept like sort of disappearing out of the screen, and then <clears throat> he would be popping back up, and he had that sort of, you know, post cocaine look about him, and, <clears throat> and then he was sort of incoherent, and uh, so this whole drama is unfolding, um, and I don't know, I you know, I basically checked out it, I stumbled onto it, I, I found it amusing, so, <clears throat> and then there's rumors that Ralph is into self harming now. You hear about this? No, not our Ralph. <laughs> Ralph is like cutting himself. <laughs> that's just internet rumor. I don't want to spread it too far and wide yet until I get more confirmation. But that came across my feed. So, uh, you know, if you look back in the past three years and like all of these personalities that were sort of, you know, flying high, they're, they're really, uh, they've really hit reality pretty hard, Luke. You would not expect this from live streamers of the quality of Andy Worski and Ethan Ralph. No, 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 no. I mean, you... it's hubris. It's isn't that the myth? Uh, um, you know, isn't this the definition of hubris? You, 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 you well, sort they, of... these reasonable and responsible live streamers would have these mm. sort of problems. Gosh, mm. uh, we definitely so... need to keep them in our thoughts and prayers, bro. Yeah. So. So that's sort of unfolding. Um, and then, so I'm, I'm, I've sort of fallen into this uh, YouTube uh, algorithm and they keep feeding me these stories about um, criminals that have done time and now have sort of basically, you know, embraced the straight and narrow and they're, you know, more or less in recovery, as you might say. And they're, 
sort of they they're telling their stories have you ever checked out any of this type of content i haven't oh it's fascinating and so you learn about prison you learn about um you learn about the inner workings of prison from the inmates perspective you know and um so uh, not that i want to go too far into it now but it's really fascinating and basically, um, but the bottom line of why, why it's, it's you know, relevant to this conversation or, or these topics is that what, prisons come in various grades, right? Min, medium, and max, right? Yeah. And apparently like, the min security is, is pretty tolerable. But as soon as you get into medium, that's when you're potentially uh, in and amongst murderers, you know? The stakes get a lot higher once you're in a medium security prison. As soon as you're in there, you immediately segregate racially. By, it's by compulsion. I mean, you're just you're compelled to. Uh, and you have to sort of obey the code of um, your, your tribal loyalties. And so, um, and what that, that position that puts people in is just really uh, terrible. Um, yeah, it's sort of an interesting uh, dimension to the racial conversation that seems to always be going on in America. Yeah, that's my greatest fear about going to prison. Not the anal rape, not becoming somebody's bitch. My greatest fear is that going to prison might turn me racist. <laughs> yeah, well, you're forced to be racist. I, I but... might have to start thinking about race and identifying by race and making allegiances based <laughs> on race. And and, yeah. and I, I would tell you what, I'd come into prison let's try to rejoice in our common humanity. So uh, let's say, uh, you know, hypothetically, and God forbid that you God were, uh, uh, you know, sentenced to prison, to, you know, a medium security prison. And then you get there on day one. <clears throat> there wouldn't be many Jews, bro. Well, my name's so, Luke Ford. So, I, yeah, so I, you'd I'd be in the, the Aryan Brotherhood. Brotherhood. But I mean... I'm trying to think, would I rather pull a train for, for 10 men or, or be racist and join the Aryan Brotherhood? It's a dilemma. Yeah, but then, you know, part of the, okay, so yes, that's basically what would happen. You'd have to join the Aryan Brotherhood. You might have to get a tattoo. And you might have to um, do some violence against another uh, racial group to prove your bona fides. Wouldn't that that's sort of part wow. of so, this is like a, so either I, I, I get, you know, passed around like a little bitch or I have to do some violence against another racial group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're not pleasant choices. You not know, pleasant for, choices at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm a lover, for, not a fighter, but maybe in prison, I think I might be more of a fighter than a lover. <laughs> you might have to work on some of your Kung Fu. Just so, just all the more reason to uh, stay on the... Uh, stay on the good side of the law so anyway i find that very eye-opening and uh uh you know i drive you know i drive by a prison you know a lot and I, I look over the fence and i just wonder what goes on in there not not many good things it doesn't sound like i mean the worst the worst part of being dysfunctional in any way whether you're an alcoholic whether you're a compulsive live streamer whether you're a porn addict whether you're an under-owner or a debtor or an overeater, the worst thing about any kind of you know, self-destruction that, that someone has going on in their life is that it's going to thrust you into the company of other self-destructive and frequently criminally inclined people. Like, the yeah. number one reason to keep your life on the straight and narrow 
is that the people that you're going to surround yourself with will most likely be also similarly straight and narrow. Yeah. And so it's just like another ring of protection to keep you um, well within the margins of safety. Um, and, you know, but the way they would talk and they would talk about, you know, their psychology and why they were so compulsive about committing crimes and um, how they couldn't even imagine not committing crimes. It was just, I'll send you some links, but it, it, it's really, a, it, it's, it's, it's basically an extension of the addiction personality. It's sort of a, a higher rung or a lower rung of that mentality, that super uh, selfish lifestyle. And, um, and they always have the same thing where they get away with it, they get away with it, they keep upping stakes, upping stakes, and then they eventually get caught and then they're really deep in it. Um, it's that snowballing that, that uh, it just seems to be everywhere in life, right? You, you, yeah. you, you make one little mistake, you don't think it leads anywhere, but suddenly uh, that one mistake sort of informs what choices you have next. So it becomes easy and easier to make another mistake. And that sort of further limits your choices. And, and the snowball is the same. That's what I'm calling it, the snowball. But the cascading uh, effect of bad decision-making. Wow. So anyway. Wait, wait, wait. I, want to, I want to pursue this. There was, there was a time in my life where I was a very spiritual man, Elliot. I didn't even shake hands with women. That's how religious I was. It was just me and God. We were just communing from the time I'd get up in the morning until the time I, I went to bed at night. I was like no fap for, for about two years. Like I was living the spiritual life. I was like hugging trees, studying the sacred text, uh, cold showers. And, and, and I was a little lonely. And, and I knew <coughs> if I just like slipped up and started sticking it in that I, I'd probably be off to the races so i tried to stay on, on a spiritual path like this woman came to visit me for a weekend and I, I virtually didn't touch her until just before she was leaving but when she came back the second time i mean i was on her and off her all, all, all weekend and and then i was just off to the races so I identify with what you say about criminals that, that they you know couldn't help themselves because like once you get a taste for promiscuity and, and variety I mean, my God, I was just like, I, like part of my brain would say, you know, don't stick it in crazy, but, mm -hmm. but then, you know, I stuck it in crazy. Then, then, then crazy's on your doorstep. And then crazy's on my <laughs> doorstep. Like I just couldn't stop sticking it in just like all these crims couldn't stop being crims. And so I was just in this, in this cycle, you know, cycle of just sticking it in, going to synagogue, meeting women, sticking it in, uh, you know, going to synagogue, you know, meeting more women, going to parties in Hollywood, meeting more women, like sticking it in in the back of my car, sticking it in mm -hmm. on the beach. And like I was in this destructive cycle and it was ruining my reputation. Like I was living in Orthodox Judaism and I got the reputation very quickly as a whore, as a mm -hmm. male whore. And so mm -hmm. I still see some of those people today. I mean, there, there are sometimes, you know, women that I run into who I slept with 25 years ago and it's not a super comfortable experience for, for any of us. Like we're all living in the, in the Orthodox Jewish community. It's, it's not, it's not ideal, but I couldn't stop sticking it in. Yeah. 
Yeah. So why is that? Why is life? Why are people dealt this game where, you know, why is life like that? Where there's just so many ways to make a mistake, you know, there's so many ways to really screw yourself up. You're going to be shocked. I've got an answer. uh I got an answer. It's, uh, It's evolutionary mismatch. So we live in an age of dopamine overload. Like you can mm. watch porn, you can eat uh, the junk food, you can get all the fat and carbohydrates that you want, you can indulge, you can play video games, you can smoke marijuana, you can just get excessive amounts of dopamine with very little effort. And we were not mm. evolutionarily adapted to this way of life. So mm. even you know straight you know, normal people, I was just reading this terrific book called Dopamine Nation. It's written by a psychiatrist, a woman at Stanford University. She specializes in addiction. Guess what? She found herself getting addicted to romance novels. She was at 1 a.m., you know, reading Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, scenes about, you know, anal sex, you know, neglecting her husband, neglecting her kids, and she couldn't stop reading romance novels because they, they gave her this dopamine rush. So it could it could happen to anyone. I mean, I think we've all had the experience of overeating, uh, watching too much TV, spending too much time on social media. Uh, it, it's just so easy to get hooked into pursuing dopamine. And apparently, once you feed the dopamine with like a cheap thrills, like once you get that reward, for, say drinking a cup of coffee, or eating some ice cream, or you know reading a romance novel if you're addicted to that sort of thing, or looking at porn then your brain works in a way that you need a bigger and bigger rush to just stay even. Because once you start getting the dopamine rewards, your your brain resets so that it wants to stay even and so it wants to even things out. And so the things you do to get a dopamine reward, there's always a much bigger price to pay, right? In, in you know, pain and suffering uh, compared to the, the pleasure that you get. And so our system is continually, you know, resetting after we fill it with dopamine. It's resetting, so it's harder and harder to stay even. So she recommends, one, actively seeking out pain, such as cold showers, cold baths, exercise, and also doing uh, periodic uh, dopamine fasts. And Mm. if you do this, you can reset your your system. Any thoughts? Uh, No, I mean, yeah, I agree 100%. um, it seems like we don't have language to talk about. I guess we're starting to have language about it, like dopamine awareness. I guess it has to happen. I mean, we're just going to... I mean, the number of people that can function, you know, the percentage of people that can function uh, uh, just in a, you know, a professional way to keep the society going is going to get relatively small relative to the size of the population. Then you're going to have a lot of just this weird thing of zombies running around, you know, looking for their fixes. And then they're all going to be survived. They're all going to rest upon the few competent people that, you know, managed to escape this dopamine addiction. I don't know. Yeah. I'm very, very, uh, I'm troubled by it. I mean, uh, it's something, it's definitely something to be aware of. And once you form those neural pathways towards addiction, you know, dopamine, 
excess it's very very easy to fall back into it so if you've ever had a cocaine problem very easy to fall back into it if you ever had a porn problem uh, or, or a, you know overeating problem it's very easy to fall back into it because those those neural pathways are formed and it's easy to get on those neural highways to hell yeah so you know think about warski back in the cocaine and i remember this friend of mine who was a real heavy smoker and he managed to quit for like a month and then he uh he went to work one day he worked at a restaurant and the place was on fire and he just reflexively just put his hand on his on his chest to find his cigarettes <laughs> and they weren't there <laughs> so he immediately ran and got a pack of cigarettes so you know it's sort of like that default your default nervous system kicks in uh takes over in a time of stress or emergency so the it's like this latent uh uh, 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 serpent that's ready to strike at any second. So, yeah. Um, oh, one, one thing she mentioned was that uh, immersing yourself in a cold bath, uh, coming out of that, it's the the equivalent dopamine rush of taking cocaine. I believe that. I believe that. Um, but it's, um, you know, from the the ocean swimming that that I was doing. Um, it's very exhilarating and it's like, uh, and it's, but it's like, it's doesn't feel it's, it's clear though. you know, the, 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 the high you get from, uh, being cold is very clear. It doesn't feel like a chemical at all. It feels like almost an anti-chemical. It feels like a, just a burst of clarity and freshness. Um, is that dopamine or is that epinephrine? I think they call that epinephrine response well, she calls it a dopamine rush and and it can extend like well over an hour the, the benefits of a, a cold bath or a cold shower so but is it literally dopamine that's triggered there yes that's what she says okay because you know these these people that go and they swim all year round you know they do sort of have this addict like behavior i mean they the, the real hardcore swimmers they go and the, the, they talk openly about you know that it's basically a drug addiction but it's different i mean because they're all functioning people you know they're high functioning people um uh, i don't know you I, I i equate you know addiction with sort of a lack of uh skill in life and these people all have skill in life so well, getting getting yeah. a dopamine rush from the pain of a cold shower is, is a positive thing. Now, you you can take it too far. So some people get addicted to exercise, and so they exercise to the point of injury. And if you're engaging in you know cold water swimming to the point of injury, then you're taking it too far. But if you're not getting injured, and if you're not you know missing out on your other obligations, then this is a healthy form of a dopamine rush. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I'm always got the sniffles, you know. I've always got, I've always got a little respiratory problem going on. I wonder if that's, eh, you know, if I could be contributing to that. Oh, you've, about got to, you. you've got to take this nasal wash, bro. I mean, I've, i I got it on Amazon, and it's, mm-hmm. it's so good, bro. I mean, it really, it, it just basically took care of all my nasal issues. And what's it called? Uh, Alkalol Solution Original Nasal Wash. And you just you just tip it back in, you know, t- tip some into into your, each nostril. I do it uh, in the morning and in the evening. It was recommended to me by a by a friend. Alkalol nasal wash, mucus solvent and cleaner. It just really cleans out everything going on in your nasal passages, 
much fewer nasal issues since I started doing this about uh, a year, 18 months ago. All right. I may have to try it. But, but my, 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 my thing is like my upper lungs for some reason. But, but, but sure, uh, anything would help at this point. <sighs> I, I didn't call I had something. I'm trying to remember what I had called in wanting to talk about, though. Um, so are you doing cold water swimming these days? Well, I, it's been, we had the spell of cold weather, uh, for a couple of weeks. So I haven't been going in. It's gotta be certain warmth out. Oh, then, when it gets cold, you don't get cold water swimming. Blah. I don't know, bro. It's, it takes a lot of willpower to sort of, if it's like 48 degrees, it's like 52 degrees, you're going to jump into 52 degree water. It takes a lot of willpower to do that. I mean, I, I think you can damage your health if you're not careful. So I, I had this rule. The sun has to be out. and It's got to be warm if I'm going to jump in the cold water. And then what about what about the mushrooms? Are you doing mushrooms? I haven't done mushrooms since over a year. I keep wanting to do it, but I've been so occupied with other things that I, it just doesn't happen. But um, it was really an interesting experience. And I... I uh, I do want to do it, uh, but it, yeah, the, the, the wind just, you know, the stars haven't aligned yet. So, um, but I, I, I do want to like do a, a proper dose. So I've been doing, I, when I did it, I do, I was doing basically micro doses, but I want to do like a, a formal proper like dose and really experience what it's all about. So last Wednesday I got a, my, my fifth COVID shot. And I got the flu shot, and I got the vaccine for shingles. So I got the got the trifecta. <laughs> yeah, and you really feel like you're improving your health by doing this and not damaging yourself. It was reckoned recommended to me by Kaiser, bro. Oh, they have no incentive, right? They, they have, incentive they gave me a personal health alert, bro. <sighs> God, so, uh, so all the headlines that are coming out about this thing, you you don't care. You just intrepidly march in. I follow the science, told. bro. My Kaiser Permanente <laughs> sent me a personal health alert and recommending <sighs> these actions. Like, who am I to say you, no to Kaiser? And it didn't cost me been... anything. It was a very pleasant, efficient experience. I was in and out of there in like 30 minutes. I haven't had the flu since December, late December 2019. So for the entire COVID period, I've had maybe the sniffles here and there, but I haven't had a proper flu. Uh, but I, um, and here we are in you know late 2002, and I've had no vaccines, no shots, no boosters, no medical visits whatsoever. And you, in contrast, have been waylaid by the flu, I think, at least four times yes. in that period. Yes. Right. And so this doesn't raise any uh, alarm bells? <laughs> doesn't no, because I the, got, the, got the flu just as much before this. So. doesn't activate the almonds. doesn't get the noggin jogging loop. I'm following my personal <laughs> health alerts from Kaiser Permanente, bro. They're, they're professionals. Yeah. Yeah, okay. They, I, they have their best interest in heart. They're not yeah. profit. They're not a non-profit, not, bro. Yeah, okay. They just follow the science. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, so what can we so, do for Andy Woski? I don't know, but there's another piece of gossip uh, regarding a former Luke Ford show participant 
Um, Mike, uh, who's no. that guy in Portland? Dennis. No, uh, Casey. no, no, no. I don't, I don't, I don't want to name Kevin Michael know. Grace. He got uh, cataract no. surgery. When's he, when's he coming on to rumble? Oh, he had cataract surgery. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, Did, um, Kyle uh, Ricardo. I, no, no, no. I, I would say, but they've had a falling out. They've had a falling out, and I, I regret having said this because I did. It's nothing. It's not. I don't want to traffic into such gossip. Uh, I'll tell you privately. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, okay. So anyway, all right. We're gonna talk a little election stuff. I know you. <coughs> you know you poo poo the idea of. What What is your prediction for uh, the midterms? Uh, I think the Republicans will take the House of Representatives, and I think there's a close to a 50% chance that I'll also win the U.S. Senate majority. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think, I think it's. I think I, I follow Ann Coulter. When I look for uh, political prog- uh, prognostication, I go with Ann Coulter. I think she's the most clued into this stuff. And she put out a substack last night that I found interesting. But she's basically, she thinks it's going to be a red tsunami. She thinks the polls, and she showed the study, she showed the detail, she showed the hist- history. And basically, the polls always, uh, you know, uh, overestimate the Dem- Democrats' chances. And then they always close towards reality, towards Election Day. But the polls kind of underrepresent the uh, Republican strength by about five percent, and this five percent is pivotal in a lot of these swing state races, and this could put them into like a significant Senate win. So I, I'm predicting a, a red tsunami. I'm with Ann. I stand with Ann. I, I just in the past week I, I put down fifty dollars and subscribed to a Substack for a year. Getting Who's? behind the paywall, getting intimate Who's? with Ann Coulter. Oh, you 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 yes. subscribe to her state Substack. Okay, All right. yeah. so did you read that piece? I have not. Okay, okay. I found it persuasive. Um, so I was one. I was telling. I listened to Richard Spencer last night on Twitter, <laughs> and I was face palming the whole time. He's been completely gelded. <laughs> He's like a totally different guy now, like totally different. It was it was jaw dropping. Have you had this experience listening to him? Oh yeah, I listened to him a lot. So he he did a a Twitter space on the midterms. Yeah, did you listen to that? Uh, no, and and oh. I, I don't see I don't see how you can don't see how you can play it. Dug on it. Uh, yeah, I think, I don't know if those are infinitely available if they once they. Once they've aired, but sometimes they are. Like, he, he just sounds like a mainstream Democrat right now, just like as um, milk toast as it gets. Um, he wasn't the fun that he used to be, you know. He, he was no no bellicose speeches, no no, you know, looking up at me and I'm looking down on them. None of that. <laughs> it was, you know, big bad Billy is sweet William now. <laughs> So, how do you account for this this trajectory? So, there's this this sort of subplot going on that, like, you know, Richard's, you know, been because of Charlottesville, he's been uh, threatened, uh, and so he has to, uh, you know, he has to turn states' evidence. 
you buy into any of this? Uh, no, just... no, 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 no. I, I think he, just as the alt-right became disillusioned with Richard Spencer, these, these things go in synchronicity. Like if I, for example, if I stop returning your your messages or your calls or whatever, you know, you'd stop reaching out. Or if I reached out to you and you didn't return my calls, you know, I'd stop reaching out to you. So just as the alt-right turned hard against Richard Spencer, you know, he turned hard against the alt-right. The, these things happen. When, when people turn their back on you, you, you automatically start thinking of reasons why you should turn your back on them. So... I don't think it's unusual that if you're intensely in a dissident movement that is increasingly ostracized, that mm. you would prefer to find your way back to mainstream society. So I, I think it's completely self-interested. I think it takes a real toll being socially ostracized. And I think he became disillusioned with the quality of the people that he knew on the alt-right. In particular, became disillusioned that almost everyone on the alt-right had turned their back on him. So I think it's completely comprehensible just in terms of having, you know, a decent social trajectory. What's, what's your thought? Uh, that's all very plausible. Um, but he seemed to thrive on sort of the edgy part of town, you know, and here he was. So does this mean like, you know, no more HBD, no more, you know, no more ethno state, no more, you know. Uh, Not for a long time because that took such a toll. I mean, think of the yeah. toll that that took on his life. I mean, when he simply yeah. did, you know, his credit card bounces at, at a bar and, and it makes the news. You know, all these people dishing on, on Richard Spencer. He was yeah. beaten down by it. So. You could understand why he was. I mean, Charles Murray, after he wrote The Bell Curve, he stayed away from that topic in public for two decades. Mm. Okay. Yeah, all very plausible. Uh, it's, it's just another, it's sort of an example of, you know, if you go to the edge, you know, uh, if you push, you push on the edges of reality, reality sort of pushes you back. You know, you stare into the, <laughs> I'm, I'm finding the wrong metaphor, but uh, you're right. It, it's tired. It's lonely out of the edges. So I guess everyone sort of gravitates sort of back to the herd eventually. Um, yeah, unless it, unless you found a way to live on on the edge. So Jared Taylor has lived seems reasonably a happy guy. Peter Brimlow mm -hmm. seems reasonably a happy guy. So mm -hmm. there are people who contentedly, happily, productively lived on the edge for decades. There's uh, William Johnson who's a white nationalist attorney in, he's got a, a flourishing law practice in downtown Los Angeles. He mainly works with uh, Japanese clients. So he's mm. been in the, the, you know, the, the white identity game for uh, over two decades. Uh, Jared Taylor's been in it for, for three decades. Uh, Steve Saylor's been doing HBD for three decades. So many people can live there, but Richard was not moderate and he mm. was not sober and mm. he was making a lot of awful decisions. Not everyone is cut out to live on the edge. In fact, only a tiny percentage of people have the right stuff to, to live on the edge. And, and Richard, who tends to excess, it, the mm. edge is not good for him. You know, he'd probably be dead if he was still living on the edge. Yeah, that makes sense. And one thing is, it sounds like in the cases that you've managed, they, 
people have a career outside of it, right? Their mm-hmm. career isn't the politics. So they're grounded by the, you know, the practical work that goes on that they have to do and they have to remain, uh, you know, digestible by, by normies. And that's the problem with Richard. Richard, you know, he's independently wealthy. And so he, he, he could take bigger risks, right. And land on his feet. And so, but because he took those bigger risks, I think he, he snapped back more vigorously. Anyway. I think that's all I got, Luke. Okay, thank, thanks, bro. Uh, great to great to talk. To all you. right, good to talk to you. All right, I'll be okay. Listening. Blessings. All right, all okay, blessings. here's right. uh, Richard talking talking about uh, Kanye West and uh, Christian nationalism. Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the. Okay, that's not that's not Richard. Okay, here we go. Motherboard, which is, I actually don't know what that is. I a blog, uh, some kind of Vice News thing. And they showed what had been taken out of this highly expansive and indulgent interview by Tucker Carlson. One of the funnier things that was taken out was that Kanye said that he was uh, vaccinated. And yeah, I don't. I mean, you set that question up. We have more information about the uh, about the uh, about what happened in the hospitals. So, in all honesty, I don't, I don't have the most, the, the most facts. As many facts. No, I mean in your life, like so I'm the, the COVID vaccine, the being stuck inside. Like, what did you think of all that? I was I was vaccinated. And you could kind of tell that. Tucker wanted to do one of these talking points of, you know, oh, the, the, the democratic fascists are on to all of us and whatever. But Kanye actually is vaccinated. That was cut, which is interesting. But there was actually some more interesting things that were cut. Um, so first off, he claims that the black, as opposed to Jews, Jews are a people. They're not just a race. So he's kind of going against his father's apparent black nationalism and saying that, no, we're, we need to be think of, we need to be, think of ourselves as a people. And we are the blood of Christ. Because we are Jews, we are a tribe of Israel. So he's not exactly replacing the tribe of Judah or Jews as they are now, but he's saying that blacks are part of it. It was made by Margaret Sanger, a known eugenics with the KKK, to control the Jew population. When I say Jew, I mean the 12 lost tribes of Judah, the blood of Christ, who the race, the people known as the race black really are. This is who our people are the blood of Christ. This, as a Christian, is my belief. And he makes another interesting claim where he seems to pick up on something that likely Candace Owens told him, which is that there are more black babies aborted in New York City than are born. And if we go back to Margaret Sanger, you see the racism at the heart of Planned Parenthood and the uh, contraception campaign, which was uh, Margaret Sanger is the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was promoting contraception for what it's worth and not abortion, but put that aside. And that it, there was a racial component to it, a eugenics component to it to get rid of blacks. Now, that actually is true in the sense that Margaret Sanger was sending, you know, love letters to Madison Grant and so on. I mean, she conceived of herself as a eugenicist, as many, many progressives did. Eugenics was a, and immigration reform was a progressive so, I mean, cause. She conceived and of we haven't had it since the, the, the progressives of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century I'm talking about, have left the scene. But anyway, um, so he's basically imputing racism into progressivism, which does have a strong, <laughs> there's a good reason to do that, in fact. Uh, but he also says that Planned Parenthood is thus anti-Semitic which is odd because Margaret Sanger's Jewish, but Planned Parenthood's anti-Semitic because they are attacking the blood of Christ, which includes blacks. So from what I can take it, he is saying that blacks are a tribe, they're maybe a lost tribe of Israel, but they, they are a tribe of Israel. They are part of the story. They were there in the Old Testament. And as Christians, they are continuing the story. So I do think it, I mean, it's not that 
kind of smart and it's weird, but I do actually think it's coherent and he is saying something. And in that way, I think he's actually getting at that weird ambivalence where he's not sure if he wants to hate the Jews or be the Jews. And even though he might be, you know, righteously angry at, you know, I don't know, Jewish globalist or Jews on Wall Street or Jews controlling the. That's a great line. Kanye doesn't know whether to hate the Jews or to be the Jews. That's a great line, great observation. Um, the music industry and not promoting Christian messages and all this kind of stuff, uh, he still sees himself as a part of that story. So it's a profoundly ambivalent outrage. But I think this is actually typical and tells us a lot about Christianity. Yeah, it's the, it's the problem of, you know, Nietzsche. Okay, I'll take a pause there on Mark Brahman and let's find out what's going on with Kino Casino. You can hear him sniffing. I won't be Pope lied Andy to. Wolski. I won't be made a fool like this. I won't be made a fool of like that in public so that Ralph can post on Twitter, Kochski's back on the blow. Why? Because Godwinson shit-talked you? The chat called you Tardski? The chat says an awful lot of mean things about, do you hear me fucking spiraling a job the nub out of fucking nowhere? That's crazy, man. That's fucking crazy. And to think that I'm going to fucking lay down and take that shit and I'm not going to call it out for what it is is unprofessional publicly? You've got another thing coming, dude. The entitlement and the disrespect and the lack of effort is shocking. It's fucking appalling. It's appalling. I still think, like, listen, I still love Andy. I wish him the fucking best. But I'm not enabling that. Why? So, so he can fucking kill himself on fucking drugs? Well, do you know, you say, why don't you talk about with him in private instead of grilling him on stream? Because he's publicly doing drugs on stream. It's a public problem. It makes me look like a fucking joke. And in fact, I am a fucking joke for allowing it. I am a fucking joke for allowing the charade to go on as long as it fucking did. Last night, that show was shit. It was shit. Did Andy prep anything on that show? No. Did, well, actually, he did. He brought in the one clip with the fucking Pepsi in the milk, so that's not true. But did he... <laughs> Did he actually give a fuck last night? No. He didn't give a fuck. There's no passion there. Sad. So let's have a look at this tweet. Uh, PPP quits the Kino Casino due to Andy Worski's cocaine addiction. After months of ignoring Kokski's obvious problem, only once it becomes a public matter, Ashton throws his business partner under the bus for making him look like a fool. Okay, what's also on Ann Quarter's website right now, 43 anti-white commercials. So why the increasing number of commercials and their anti-white rhetoric? This is Jeremy. Jeremy and his team just completed a project that had executives awkwardly offering up fist bumps uh, and uh, high fives. Yeah, they were on cloud nine, but that was yesterday. Today, those same executives are pushing for the next big thing. Something smarter, faster, better. 
Wow, look at Jeremy, really cool black guy at all these dumb white people. Something the industry has never seen before. Don is stressing out big time, but not Jeremy. Jeremy isn't worried because his team has Pluralsight. He knows what technology skills his team needs to meet the company's goals, and Pluralsight makes gaining those skills as easy as grabbing a snack from the candy wall. The team starts with adaptive skills tests. It takes just five minutes to get their results. Based on their scores, they get a recommended starting point in a path, saving them time because now they know. And uh, this YouTube video was released July 27, 2017, so it's over five years exactly old. Exactly what they need old. to learn. At lunch, Jenny freshens up with a few courses. She loves knowing she's learning from industry experts Smart with real-world experience. Not a dumb Jeremy guy. has strong foundational knowledge, but takes some advanced courses to expand his skill set. Don flies his drone around the office on, for Don. most of the afternoon. Bloody hell, but Don. he dives deep on his commute and continues learning at home. When Jenny comes across a particularly challenging concept, she requests a mentor right from Pluralsight. Within minutes, she's not only unstuck, but she's found a solution that can make those executives' dreams a reality. Jeremy and his team return to the office with a newfound confidence, feeling smarter than yesterday. With Pluralsight, there's nothing this team can't achieve. Powerful. Go team. Go team. Smarter than yesterday. Alpha black male humiliates weak white male. On the Steve Harvey show. Okay, really poor sound quality here. Come on, guys, I'm trying to run a professional. Time you told your wife you were at the regional sales conference. Wait, what? what? Remember last March with Steve? <laughs> Or use it to make a white wine spritzer. Perfect for hanging out with 2 chains. I love your rap music. Oh, I have a helicopter. We should be going. You don't like boats? I like boats. And I love all these 7-Up mixed drinks. 7-Up. Mix it up a little. Weak, nerdy, ugly, and occasionally gay white male humiliates himself while professional black male looks down at him in pity. Burritos. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> Weak, dirty, ugly, and occasionally gay white male humiliates himself while... Hey, are you going to finish those? Sorry, they're already gone. No, they're not. You left the best part. No, I'm pretty sure they're... Mmm, cheese. Yuck. Hello, Doritos. More mixed greens. Wow, that's... hot. What's hot, the chili or the chicken? There's nothing hotter than a guy who listens. Find yours on Live Links. Call or visit LiveLinks.com for your local number. Intelligence, 18 plus. Well, the car is great. Just show me the Carfax. Carfax, let me do you one better. This old guy can sniff out any problems. He's not going to help. You want to see the accidents and service records reported to Carfax and a price based on the car's history. Yeah, just show me the Carfax. But nothing gets past this old bloodhound. Before you buy a used car, just say, show me the Carfax. Every day at Red Robin's Tavern Double and all-you-can-eat fries are just $6.99? Yeah, and you can have it straight up or with one of three styles. Perfect for a guy like us. I like when you try boxing. Put your hands up! Let's do this. Man, next time y'all need to bob and weave. The Fire Grill Tavern Double with bottomless steak fries. Yum. 
Every day at Red Robin's Tavern Double with all the fries you can eat is just $6.99. You can have it straight up or with one of three styles. Which is perfect for a guy like us. Unlike when you went to prom with Courtney Cavendish. She smelled fine. The Fire Grill Tavern Double with Bottomless Steak Fry. Oh, hey, Mike. Where do you have to? Uh, just diagramming this accident with my State Farm Pocket Agent app. Hmm. You can also get a quote and pay your premium with this thing. I thought State Farm didn't have all those apps. Where'd you hear that? The internet. Okay, I'm noticing, noticing some pretty strong trends there. Okay, let's, uh, let's get back and deconstruct Tucker Carlson. That's a scary prospect. But no one running for office right now is quite as scary to people like that as Carrie Lake. She's running for governor of Arizona. Lake may be the most skillful communicator in American politics right now. But most terrifying of all, she spent 30 years in television news. So when Carrie Lake says the media are corrupt, she's not guessing. She lived right in the middle of it for decades. This is a deeply unsettling message for Democrats to hear. Why? Because it strikes at the heart of their power. With okay, so Tucker's trying to say that uh, the news media is at the heart of Democrats' power. And it's nonsense. How am I so sure of that? Because we did not evolve to be gullible. We would still not be here on this earth if we evolved to be gullible. We are extremely good at decoding other people trying to manipulate us against our best interests. So the media doesn't change, you know, all these minds, and, and it never has. Without the complicity of the media, there is no chance neoliberal Democrats could get elected to office. Not one of them. So he's essentially saying that the, de that the news media swings races to the Democrats by 10% plus, right? That's what he just said, that no Democrats could get elected to office without the news media. So the news media swinging votes at least 10%. And that's absolute nonsense. There's zero evidence for that. Come on, show me something that's peer-reviewed, bro. ...of them ever. They've got nothing to offer you. It's not like they're improving the country if you looked around. No. They need the media. The media are all they have. The media are all the Democrats have. Without the media, Democrats would never get elected. Just absolutely false. Just ridiculous. And, and then a little later, Tucker completely contradicts example himself. Example Carrie Lake's response in June when a CNN reporter asked her for an interview. Watch this. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you. Mm. Off you don't have a mask on anymore. Um, What's we're, going we're on? Outside. Do you have a wow. Well, chat? we're six feet apart. <laughs> do you have a minute to chat? Um, I'll do an interview. Okay. As long as it airs on CNN Plus. Oh. Does that still exist? Yeah. I didn't think so because the people don't like what you guys are peddling, so, which is propaganda. Thank do, you. Do you freak i'll do it on cnn plus oh that failed because everyone hates you <laughs> it's so great because it's so true all of us know it but the people in charge especially in the republican party never admit it out loud if the new york times did a hit piece on mitch mcconnell he'd be rushing around his office worried about it so now tucker's making the very opposite argument he made earlier in the show so earlier in the show he says that media power is the only reason Democrats get elected. Now he's saying that the idea that the media has vast power is nonsense. The New York Times is a hit piece and Carrie Lake every day, and she laughs because it doesn't matter what the New York Times think. Okay. So one, one point beginning the show, the news media is the only reason Democrats still get elected. 
10 minutes later on the show, what the news media does makes absolutely no difference, right? Just a, a complete contradiction in thought. But what unites both ends of this uh, Tucker Carlson segment, it's highly entertaining. Right? Fox is fun. Fox is entertaining. Jack Schaefer wrote about this in Politico. Democrats with a dirty secret, they watch Fox. New data shows a conservative outlet has plenty of lefty viewers. Turns out everyone likes to be entertained. And why do so many people on the left or so many people in the center watch Fox or listen to talk radio is because these institutions depend on their tabloid instincts, right? That they've done away with politesse and uh, brought in a two-fisted contention of a street fight. Fox does its best to seek conflict and to accentuate it for the camera. It's never going to win a Peabody, but it's what the masses like, clearly not just conservatives. Right? People tune into Fox because it's so compelling, just like people turned into you know PPP in the Kino Casino. So if you want a Fox-sized audience, stop thinking about ideological appeal and start thinking more about showmanship. Start making the news foxy. Interesting. Now, you, you want to see foxy news? I will show you something foxy. This is a professor of English literature at the Oxford Center for, for the Writing Life, Dr. Merv Emery. She is from Turkey. So the talk as it is structured begins with an epigraph. And that epigraph comes from Theodore Adorno's The Essay as Form, and here it is. The essay form, however, bears some responsibility for the fact that bad essays tell stories about people instead of elucidating the matter at hand. Okay, so this is her essay in the New York Review of Books, The Illusion of the First Person. Historical survey of the personal essay shows it to be the purest expression of the lie that individual subjectivity exists prior to the social formations that gave rise to it. Okay, who we are is overwhelmingly determined by the society around us, right? We're not these unique snowflakes, right? We are shaped profoundly by the society around us, right? The, the individual is largely a lie, because the individual conforms to different circumstances and situations. The individual reacts to social incentives. Right? People aren't unique, overwhelmingly. People are products of social incentives combined with their genetics and upbringing. To speak of the personal essay is to speak of a genre that is difficult to define, but easy to denounce in a loud, almost indignant clamor to the world at large. The offending element is rarely the essay as a form. It passes unscathed. But its apparent content, the personal, a permanent temptation for a form whose suspiciousness of false profundity does not protect it from turning into slick superficiality. Right, so the personal essay presumes the individual. It's, it's like all the, the talk about character education. We need to build up people's moral character. Well, we don't have a moral character because we react completely differently in different situations. We act differently in a church than we do in a bar, as opposed to a sports stadium, as opposed to being at work, being with one friend as opposed to another friend. Now, you check out the, these 
lovely high heels here. What is Professor Merv Emery trying to tell us with these high heels? Like, what is the message that she's sending with Merv Emery putting these, these high heels on top of all these books? I know she's trying to say something to me. By, by the way, she is married with two kids. Like Theodore Adorno in the essay as form. Consulting even the soberest of entries in the Oxford English Dictionary does nothing to shape the dismissal and suspicion the personal evokes. If anything, it only intensifies it. The personal, we are reminded, is what is individual and private. Its concerns are bodily, physical. It signals the presence Right. So I notice a lot of people like Richard Spencer, they value, you know, philosophical coherence, right? What, what's most important about someone is the, the arguments they can make, the, the philosophy that they can unspin, the, the coherence of their thought. That's what matters most. But the personal essay, it lives in the messy realm of the body. And the body ejaculates. The body expels all sorts of fluids the body has needs i know you think oh 40 you know there's a moral leader there's a strong man there's a person with strong moral character you know 40 isn't you know ejaculating all over the place you know 40 is no fab for, for for nine years now you know 40 is just a man of steel he is a philosopher he's an intellectual he's not bothered by the same bodily concerns that that uh, affect the rest of us but I have my weaknesses, right? I get vulnerable. Immediacy and particularity of a singular entity, not an abstract. Okay, so there's plenty you can learn from the body. Sometimes your emotions are a better guide to life than your thinking, right? Sometimes the insights that you'll get from someone sharing about what's going on in their body or what's going on with their feelings or their personal experience is far more profound, far more useful than than reading the New York Times. <laughs> Ricardo says, Forty gets off on women reading essays. He owns all of her audiobooks. I, I'm strictly interested in her for a mind, bro. I, I, I'm not fixated on her body. I'm not thinking about her body. She's talking about her body, but I'm thinking about her mind. I mean, I'm sorry that you don't get to live up here. See, so many people live in, you know, these fetid tropical swamps. But I don't live in a fetid tropical swamp. I live up on, on the mountaintop of, you know, high, you know, spiritual insight where the air is cool and fresh. You know, there are no tropical swamps up here. Now, I'm just living up here, living a life of philosophical contemplation, you know, stern morality. Now, I, I'm not down here in the, the fetid swamps, bro. ...or an impersonal force. Nothing we might associate with social or collective cognition. A list of antonyms to the personal essay might include... She's oozing sexuality? Dude, you don't understand. This is for the Oxford Center for Life Writing. I mean, she published this essay in the New York Review of Books. So what is the opposite of the much maligned personal essay? This talk thinks through a taxonomy of opposites, the impersonal essay, the political essay, the collective essay, to reveal the specific aesthetic and historical stakes of the personal essay. All right, this is not some tawdry, oozing sexual appeal, you know, live stream here. At the heart of the personal essay, this professor argues, 
resides at once in an illusion of the purely private selfhood and else purely private selfhood is not purely and private it is profoundly shaped by our connections our society our community the people that we love and care about all right so that's why it's an illusion the the individual is a fiction because th there's no me without you if you weren't here listening to me right now and talking to me right now i would not be who i am i would be different Right, so the illusion of the purely private self becomes increasingly difficult to sustain, so that narration of the breach must become increasingly spectacularized, resulting in the tawdriness and self-indulgence frequently attributed to personal essays today. I could not have said that better myself. The structural essay, the communal essay, the public essay, the political essay. Tell me you would not like to study essays with Professor Merv Emery. And she... she she released the most definitive book on the Myers-Briggs. So the Myers-Briggs personality test, it has no psychological validity. It is purely a money-making scam, but it appeals to people's self-indulgence, people who, you know, want to, you know, get into, you know, uh, insights into themselves. But all these insights from Myers-Briggs are just bogus. But, you know, it's like uh, getting... getting uh, a reading about your your stars astrology it's like getting an astrological reading myers-briggs is as accurate and as valid as an astrological reading but it's a multi multi-million dollar marketing scam uh thought up by by two women who were stuck at home they came up with it turned it into a big business so she wrote that book i just yes i just downloaded two of uh, dr merv emery's books and then the other one not an easy read. So the Personality Brokers is the strange history of Myers-Briggs and the birth of personality testing. And there's a whole genre of psychology which is based on personality testing, which is itself based upon people, you know, bubbling in things on self-report. So it doesn't have much validity. Then she also wrote a book in, published in 2017, Parrot Literary, The Making of Bad Readers in Post-War America. And that was released by the University of Chicago. Luke, to me, is a zero-baggage-tolerance boss. No way Luke dates single moms. Tiny but tasteful. Luke, do I ever listen to Lisa Ann's podcast? Never listen to Lisa Ann's podcast. Depose King Charles, put her on the throne. She's wonderful, isn't she? I mean, just the quality of her thought. It's effervescent. Her, her thinking has a, a pristine crystalline quality she makes love to the camera hermione meets kim kardashian gets the old blood pumping she's clouding the issues with breast milk god forbid does she know that her top is loose i think she's beyond considerations of loose tops bro she's she teaches at the oxford center for for life writing the critical essay or the impersonal essay or as Adorno insinuates in the epigraph to this talk, the good essay, which prioritizes elucidating the matter at hand instead of telling stories about people as bad essays do. So I don't think that an essay is bad because it's just telling stories about people and that an impersonal essay or a political essay is somehow superior. The information you get from one individual's life may be more profound, more useful, more important, more interesting, more captivating than some article on the front page of the New York Times, which inevitably comes from 
a report by some governmental bureaucracy. What makes essays that tell stories about individual people, their bodies, their personalities, and their private lives bad? Yeah, as Ricardo says, she has transcended the need for clothes. I mean, she's not wearing the clothes, you know, the clothes. She's just operating at a higher plane. For Adorno, as for Walter Benjamin, whom Adorno names as his favorite essayist, essays about people betray an irresponsibility to their true object, the private individual. The private. So this is why I'm such a big historicist. Right? Historicism means that you can't understand anything without understanding the time and the place and the context in which an event happens or a piece of writing is produced or a live stream. And I am making this live stream on October 20th, 2022. I am a 56-year-old bachelor. I'm a convert to Orthodox Judaism. I've lived in Beverly Hills and West Los Angeles for almost uh, 30 years. And, you know, most of my friends are writers, right? So... You have to understand what I'm saying within a particular historical context. So that's why she is making the argument that individuality is a fiction, right? I'm a historicist. You can't understand anything without understanding the time and the place, the circumstances that produce an event, right? Outside of a particular time and place, you don't really understand what's going on. An individual is not a particular person with a particular story to tell, no matter how distinctive original, or purely bizarre the elements of that story may be. The private individual is not a proper name, neither Virginia Woolf nor Elizabeth Hardwick, not Joan Didion, David Foster Wallace, John Jeremiah Sullivan, or whomever you consider to be your favorite personal essayist. It is not the essay's author or its narrator. Rather, it is the idea that animates all of these figures, the powerful and unobtrusive concept that gives the personal essay the appearance of ventriloquizing a singular and spontaneous subjectivity. Right. So she's, again, making the point that the personal essay is largely a fiction. It's not primarily, you know, the individual subjective experience. It is the individual subjective experience refracted through his interactions with community, with with time and space and uh, context and, and heritage, right? You can't understand people outside of their context, outside of their heritage, outside of their, their race, religion, social class, right? There's no me without you, right? Without my friends, I have no idea who I'd be because, like, I take you with me. Like, when I, you know, shut down all the cameras and I'm just doing my thing alone, reading a book, you know, I'm thinking about you, like, thinking about, oh, I want to share this with you. I want to get your feedback on this, right? We are creatures of time, space, of the body, and of community, Now, I can get my highest ratings when I gossip about people, but I achieve the most connection with my audience when I am the most honest in my disclosure. But this occurs at certain times and at certain places. It will have varying pull on people, right? Most people will accurately think that anyone who talks about themselves publicly is narcissistic and self-centered, which is generally true. That's why I try to put my focus when I talk about myself publicly, I, I try to touch on those things that are shameful. So if I were alone in my room right now, you know, delving into this uh, video or essay by Merv Emery, I would be speaking in a different way. I would be a different person. I'm speaking the way I do and conducting myself the way I do because you are here. 
we're in a particular context. The private individual is the ideological apparatus that puppets the genre's first-person mode of address. The I that posits itself as both the subject and the object of its own understanding and asks its readers to receive it as such. Now, most essayists and scholars who write about the personal essay agree that its I is, by both necessity and choice, an artful construction. What right, so what I tell you about myself is at best an artful construction. Like, you know, I hope it's not like an outright lie. I, I, I'd rather that it's an artful construction than an outright lie. But of course, you know, I'm only revealing certain things about myself, the most precious parts of my life I, I don't share publicly. I, you know, take into consideration my own welfare, that the welfare of the people who are important to me before I share. Watch, they say, as it flickers in and out of focus as a simulacrum, a chameleon, a made-up self, a distorting representation of the individual from whose consciousness it originates and whose being it registers. And I should say that those descriptors all come from different people writing about the personal essay, ranging from Edward Hoagland to Karl Kraus to Philip Lopate. Yes. So remember, there was a huge boom in uh, personal essay writing, like particularly with the rise of, of the blog. And then there was just a huge boom in, in women writing personal essays. That, that, that seems to be over. So what makes essays that tell stories about people so bad? Because the private individual is not a particular person with a particular story to tell, no matter how distinctive, original, or purely bizarre. The private individual, right, is shaped by the society around him. Right, so we, we have the idea that there's some kind of, you know, private individual who can craft a, a personal essay that will, you know, share with us their, their inner life. But their inner life is going to be always shaped by the society around them. So the I in the personal essay is at best an artful construction. But having marveled at the first person's aesthetic flexibility and freedom, few critics, if any, put this claim through its dialectical paces. What if individual subjectivity were as much a fiction, an illusion, as the I with which it so prettily speaks? Okay, so this is academic language, and, and it's very challenging, but most of what we experience is shaped by the people and community in our lives, the circumstances of our lives, in addition to the genetics that we bring to the table and, and our upbringing. So we may think, oh, you know, I want to jump all over th this beautiful woman. But hey, that just might be, you know, sexist media, you know, objectifying women. Okay, no, I don't believe that. I believe that we're genetically compelled as men to want to uh, get close to beautiful women like Merv Emery. What if stressing the artifice and ornament of the first person were a clever, if largely unconscious, strategy for masking the personal essays problematic, the internal limitations on what its author can... So what is it about academics that they just love the word pragmatic? You know, why are they just so in love with the word problematic? Like, why don't they just say what the problem is instead of using problematic? Just come out and say what the damn problem is. Stop talking about this is problematic. And cannot say. 
What if the conceptual limitation of the genre or its interpolation of both reader and writer into the ideological process of individualism? It's glittering veneer of expressive freedom. Right. So she's talking, we have particularly in Anglo societies and in America, uh, the apex of this an ethos of the individual. Right. In, in America, there's there's more emphasis on you know, the individual should be all he can be. In England and in Australia, there's much more of an emphasis on mateship and, and community in Orthodox Judaism, much more of an emphasis on mateship. But in, in America, we've got this ethos that the individual should get out there and try to be all he can be. But this is a social construction. It's not, you know, inherent in the human condition. Yeah its seductive promise of speaking and writing as a self-determining subject. What if no performance of stylish confession or sly concealment, no amount of fashionably anguished hand-wringing over the essay's complicity or her privilege could shake this ideology loose? What if it only intensified? Wow, did you see how she looked up and addressed the camera there? My God, I mean... this is just stunning. Complicity or her privilege could shake this ideology loose. What if it only intensified wow. its enchantments? Wow, speaking of enchantments, I mean, did you see that? Did, did we all share this moment together with this professor at the Oxford Center for Life Writing? I mean, when she looks directly at the camera and, and licks her lips and says these profound words. Wow. Another lip lizard. To answer these questions about the personal essay, its mode of address, and the private individual that enlivens both, requires a biography of sorts, though assuredly not a personal one. According to Walter Benjamin... I really like... Look how tasteful her makeup is. I mean, it's not garish. You know, it's not Kim Kardashian. It's, you know, it's not a porn star makeup. It, it's just very understated. It, it's very classy. The private individual was conceived sometime between 1830 and 1948 during the reign of Louis Philippe, the citizen. Okay, what could she gain from an Alexander Technique lesson? So notice how there's a lot of tension in this particular shoulder and less tension in this shoulder. So in her right shoulder, it's it's compacted. So I'm going to assume she's right-handed. And so notice that the, the distance here between her neck and her shoulder is much shorter and much more compacted than with her left shoulder. So she's got a lot of unnecessary tension up here in her right shoulder. Also a lot of tension in her face and in her lips and in her throat, in her neck. So learning to let go of this unnecessary tension, I think would uh, bring her a significant joy and realizations, right? Because what goes on in your body affects your thinking. Right. It would free up her thinking. It would f- free up her emotions. King and first bourgeois monarch. Under his rule, the European ruling class and the middle class came together to realize their defining goal, the separation of the public. from. So also notice how much higher her left shoulder is compared to her right shoulder. So if she's walking around with one shoulder much higher than the other, I'm sure she's got one hip that is rotated forward uh, compared to the other. Probably her right hip is rotated forward, which will make one leg shorter than the other. And then the central nervous system reacts in a way to always keep your eyes level. So it's going to wrench her back 
to keep her eyes level. So she probably suffers from a great deal of back pain, which a good Alexander Technique teacher could help her release. Yeah, she's leaning on the left arm of her chair, and yet her left shoulder is still about two inches higher than her right shoulder. From the private domain, where as marks of and her head is tilted. So her head is tilted to her left side. So, so she's tilting her head to her left side. And her left shoulder is about two inches higher than her right shoulder. So I don't think she's, you know, phys feeling physically free and easy right now, particularly also wearing high heels. Right, wearing high heels puts tremendous stress on the back, and it, it uh, is very distorting to the musculature. It, it makes you much more susceptible to back injury and to all sorts of other physical injuries. And to think how much I could help her, if only she knew. Observes the bourgeoisie could retreat to rejoice in property, family, religion. And, and notice how her, her arms don't really move. Her, her torso doesn't move much. There's, there's a lot of tension in, in her, her torso. Order. Not a compelling speaker. So notice there's not a lot of melody to her voice. There's, there's no, like, rising intonation. She imbibed the same message that I imbibed, and most of us imbibed, that you should end your sentences by going down in pitch. But notice how boring that is. It's much more interesting to speak with a rising pitch, with rising melody, by ascending the staircase. She doesn't do that, so she's not a skilled presenter. Well, nevertheless, continuing to participate in the exploitative politics of the public realm. So notice that, that falling pitch. She's going down the staircase. Once labor had been cordoned off from life, once the productive activity of work had been separated from the apparently unproductive experience of dwelling. Yeah, new, new Luke Ford show format, critiquing hot women from an Alexander tech te Technique perspective. <laughs> yes, yeah, those high heels that keep those books, you know, from, from flying off. Luke might be doing a content maker focus for weeks on her videos. <laughs> this would actually lead Luke giving private Alexander technique lessons. Yeah, I should do more of this. Telling the private individual was born. Notice a very classic lipstick, just a little bit of gloss. You see that little shine off her lips. That then see, yeah, see the the tension in the neck and the throat area. You hear a little bit of a strain, a little bit of a pinched voice here. He was quite naturally blind, deaf, and... So even when she's coming up, notice how tight her shoulders are and how tight her torso is. So she's kind of compacting her, her spine. She's kind of pulling down and in on herself. Down to his own history as a derivative creature, an artifact of political... So even when she's leaning back, you notice that this, this shoulder is still two inches higher than her right shoulder. Nice teeth and economic processes that he possessed little incentive to encourage. I like, I like how she, she speaks, you know, kind of raising her upper lip. Uh, it just seems very vulnerable. So generally speaking, women become more attractive the more vulnerable they appear. 
and men become more attractive the more dominant they appear. So let me get my cricket bat. The domestic sphere was his incubator, his sanctuary from any commercial and social considerations. There he could retreat, wide-eyed and mewling, to probe what he earnestly believed to be his thoughts, lodged in his self. Right. We often think, you know, these are my thoughts lodged in me, but the thoughts that we're thinking are implanted in us by the society around us. His mind, his body, his home. Okay. So can I, can I do an Obama or a Trump speech? That's a great idea. I ought to do that. So Obama, of any politician of, we, of which I'm aware, has, has the best use of himself. He, he is the most at ease. He's got a little bit of the forward head posture, but, but not very much. Now, George W. Bush had all sorts of weird interfering tension patterns. Uh, so did Richard Nixon. Uh, Ronald Reagan was fairly smooth and elegant in his presentation. The private individual who in the office needs to deal with reality needs the domestic interior to sustain him in his illusions, Benjamin wrote in the Arcades Project, explaining how the material ownership of private property mirrored the illusory ownership of subjectivity. Ah, right. So the whole development of the individual, this, this professor's arguing, you know, arose at the same time as the development of capitalist ideology. So... Essentially, she is placing the development of the, the individual in the 19th century. He continued, from these derive the phantasmagorias of the interior, which for the private man represents the universe. In the interior, he brings together the far away and the long ago. What big, beautiful eyes. I mean, whatever she's doing with her eyebrows and her eyelashes, I mean, those eyes just pop. Wow. You could get lost in those eyes. For Benjamin, the best representative of the private individual was the collector, the true resident of the interior as an architectural space of living and an existential space of being. For us, it might be the personal essay collection, which, now that the apartments are smaller and decluttering is in, props up the same ideological fiction. The purpose of this talk, then, is to argue that the personal essay's historic and aesthetic function has been... To so, generally speaking, you don't want to be tilting your head a great deal when, when you're on camera. It's kind of weird and distorting. ...persuade us not just that personhood is beautiful or good or unique, but that it is primordial, that individual subjectivity and its expression exist prior to the social formations that give rise to it. So, it's very alluring when women like uh, doing things with their neck is kind of a come hither thing because it, it's kind of bringing emphasis to their vulnerability. So I can stand here and I can, I can do the same things with my neck, but it's not going to do anything for women because what makes men attractive is the more dominant they appear. What makes women attractive is the more submissive they appear. And so bringing attention to your neck, you know, accentuates submissiveness. It accentuates vulnerability. This is a lie. The lie that subtends bourgeois individualism and all its intrusions into language, art, and education, as Adorno explains in the essay as form. And this is Adorno. The lie extends from the elevation of historical concepts in historical languages to primal words, to academic instruction in creative writing, and to primitiveness pursued as a handicraft to recorders and finger painting, 
in which pedagogical necessity acts as though it were metaphysical virtue. So she keeps quoting from Theodore Adorno and the Frankfurt School, who are largely sociologists and profoundly interested in the effect of society on the individual. The personal essay appears as the purest, most unflinching and degraded expression. Is she uncomfortable? She's not highly uncomfortable, right? She's, she's medium. I, I'd, I'd suggest she's, oh, look at those. I didn't notice those boots at the back. Did you notice those beautiful boots at the back? And then these wonderful high heels here and black. I mean, how classy. I mean, I, I know this, this, this married woman, she got like uh, black boots that, that go up to her knees. I think she spent $500 on them. Totally got her, her money's worth, given the, the reinvigorated you know, passion that she got to experience with her husband. Of this lie, certainly more so than finger painting or playing the recorder, I think. This is for the simple reason that in order for an essay to qualify as personal in the first place, the primacy of the private individual must be presupposed implicitly, but by the same token with all the more complicity Adorno writes. And so he concludes, such essays confuse themselves with the same feuilleton with which the enemies of the essay form confuse it. Right, so she's saying that the writers of personal essays get confused in thinking that what they have to say is so unique and special that they're special little snowflakes, when really, in all likelihood, overwhelmingly, what they're saying is simply reflecting the society around them and its preoccupations. By my account, then, the personal essay is a modern formation and a formation of modernity. It is a wholly different creature from Okay, so here's another view of her. Notice how much more compacted her, her right shoulder is than, than her left shoulder. From the essay birthed by Montaigne in 1570 and nurtured through the 17th century by Sir Thomas Brown. Right, so there were personal essays prior to the, the 20th century, but the personal essay as we know it today is distinct to the, the 20th century. It's much more you know, preoccupied with the self. Montaigne would talk about himself a little, uh, Augustine talked about himself, but the primary focus of Augustine was on heavenly salvation. And prior to the 20th century, generally speaking, people talked about themselves to try to make larger points about society. Thomas Fuller and Abraham Cowley. Each of these essayists is less willing than the next to disentangle the knowledge of the individual from the condition of man or nature. A commitment reflected by how their prose slides with wonderful abandon into and out of the various third person singulars. And I spent an afternoon running all of Montaigne's essays through one of those websites that basically counts all of the words for you. And it very helpfully told me that he and one appear with greater frequency than I across all 10 volumes of the essays. The I with and of which the personal essay speaks proclaims its distinctiveness from the we's that crowd the 18th century periodical essays of Joseph Addison and Richard Steele, as well as the they's that throng the 19th century metaphysical disquisitions of Lee Hunt and William Hazlitt. It bears a distant family resemblance to Charles Lamb's essays of Elia, the quintessence of the spirit of bourgeois intimacy according to Maria Paz. Yet if Lamb begets the line in the mid 19th century, and that would make sense given the kind of historical framing that I've offered for the personal essay, 
then he nevertheless takes some care to thwart its autobiographical mode of referentiality. Writing under a pseudonym lets him throw a small but shattering wrench into the personal essay's production of individual personhood, its demand for a single subject whose identity is defined by the uncontestable readability of his proper name, as Paul Deman put it in a related discussion of autobiography. No one has approached the essays of Elia, writes Virginia Woolf in The Decay of Essay Writing. Published nearly a quarter century before Benjamin's The Arcades Project and a half century before Adorno's The Essay is Form, Woolf's lament about the aesthetic decline of the personal essay grasped the problem of telling stories about people not head on, but symptomatically, and since there's no harm in admitting it, snobbishly. Right. So particularly in British life, you're, you're expected not to slop over with your emotions. And if you're going to write about yourself, you should do it indirectly. You should do it elliptically. You should do it philosophically. You shouldn't be vulgar about it. She does not open by offering a history of bourgeois individualism, but by decrying its most obvious social and institutional manifestations. So... This is interesting philosophically. She's talking about with the rise of capitalism, we get the, the rise of the veneration of the individual and an increasing desire of individuals to have their own private space in addition to their own private property and their own private space, not just physically, but also in the interior, right? That individuals want personal development. They, they take more time to assess how they're feeling. They, they give more value to their internal subjective experience. It used to be that people primarily experienced themselves as members of a tribe. But with the rise of capitalism in the Anglo world, we get the rise of the individual who doesn't just want to accumulate private property, but wants to accumulate private space on both the outside in the physical world and also in the interior subjective world. First, there's the spread of education which ritualizes the subjective illusion by stressing the personal and individual nature of all one's failures and successes. Right. So the college admission process we have in the United States was set up in the 20th century to limit the participation of Jews. So the writing of the personal essay that uh, most colleges require was done so that uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, colleges could limit the admissions of Jews, also having to show what extracurricular activities you participate in, another opportunity to limit the, the influx of Jews, also to locate where you're coming from, what's your, what's your geography, what's your address, another way to limit the influx of Jews. Second, there's the proliferation of print culture, all the tracts, pamphlets, advertisements, gratuitous copies of magazines, and the literary production of friends, that arrive by post, by van, by messenger, at all hours of the day, Wolf complains. For her, the British public sphere is characterized by all manner of excess, beginning with a dramatic increase in literacy rates, then a rise in the distinct genres of literary production, their means of distribution. So when you had generalized literacy, what were the upper classes going to do to distinguish themselves from the great masses who are now literate, right? The, the great masses could now read. This is why you get the, the development of increasingly abstruse art, whether it's literature or, or physical art, so that you have to be really upper class to be able to enjoy it. This is a way of still showing that you're special, because if everyone else is literate and is reading books, then being literate and reading books does not set you apart. 
So the ruling classes, the upper classes have always wanted to set themselves apart from the masses. And so they develop distinctive tastes in art and literature that uh, are usually inaccessible to the vast majority of people. And uh, Hitler was very much like this. He, he you know, looked down on, on Philistine tastes. And their frequency of circulation. The relentless churn of both schools and presses results ultimately in the flattening of all this written matter and in a feeling of oversaturation, of boredom on the part of the reader who impatiently bears the onslaught. So we live in an age where people are increasingly sharing more and more of themselves and that kind of flattens our, our experience. And so we need something more and more shocking to hold our attention if it's coming to personal disclosure. But her boredom is not the boredom one feels when confronted with an apparently infinite and depersonalized expanse of textuality. The boredom of slogging through tightly packed columns of news items in a 19th century periodical, for instance, or of marking dozens of anonymized student exams. Rather, it is the boredom of having to attend to, quote, a very large number of people, Wolf imagines, all of whom demand public recognition through the projection of a private interiority. Right. So the, the greatest fear for, for many of us is that we're insignificant. And so one way that we try to ward off our feeling of insignificance is by broadcasting ourselves, right? Branding ourselves, making ourselves a brand and you know, doing live streams, posting on social media, uh, you know, wearing particular clothes, having particular experiences so that we can, we can essentially shout at the world, look at me, look at me, look at, you know, how interesting and wonderful I am. The intimate connection between education, the bourgeois public sphere, and the specter of private individuality, however loose or sketchily arrived at, compels Wolf to judge the personal essay a sign of the times. It is the genre whose linguistic style the capital I of I think or I feel, not only draws the individual into public, but also insists upon the value, the primacy, and the spontaneity of the individual qua individual. This ideological fiction unfurls regardless of the quality of the essayist's prose or thought. In fact, a little bit later on in this essay, during a part that I probably won't read today, I argue that there is an inverse relation between style and content or the quality of style and the quantity of personalized content delivered. Wow. Inverse relationship between the style and the amount of personal content delivered. Hmm. So style means shaping, right? Giving, giving, you know, minute attention to presentation as opposed to just slopping over with your emotions? The personal essay's significance lies not so much in the fact that we have attained any brilliant success in essay writing, but in the undoubted facility with which we write essays as though this were beyond all others, our natural way of speaking, Wolf asserts, with the amiable garrulity of the tea room. Right, so there is a spontaneous quality to a lot of first-person writing, which just draws you in and makes it very easy, very fun to read. That's why it became something of a cottage industry about uh, 10 years ago. It's primarily an expression of personal opinion, though the stress almost always seems to fall on the personal, its peculiarities, its individual likes and dislikes, rather than the strength of the opinion expressed 
or its style of expression. While these individual likes and dislikes certainly add up to large numbers, a word that Wolf repeats with amazement and scorn throughout the decay of essay writing, the numbers do not combine in any sensible or meaningful way. So part of this is that uh, you know, writing for the public w was something that was the, the domain of the upper classes, like particularly you know privileged and talented people. But with the widespread amount of literacy in late 19th century Europe, you know, more and more people were now broadcasting their thoughts. So the upper classes kind of looked down on this as gauche. They, they wanted, you know, more style. It's like when upper classes, they, they had the right to wear certain clothes that uh, people below them in social rank didn't have that right. And so writing for publication was something that people of the upper class did. And if you were of a lower class, it was you know, considered gauche or, or gross for you to be you know, broadcasting your feelings. They cannot be imagined as a mass, a totality, cannot be integrated and set to any collective social or political purpose. Even in aggregate, they demand to be recognized as an actually existing set of potentially innumerable humans, as Michael Warner has described the projection of personhood in the bourgeois public sphere. <clears throat> okay, I think that's enough for tonight. That's Professor Merv Emery from the Oxford Center for Life Writing. Bye-bye.